Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. What would you think of me if I got on this radio program and I said something that sounded like this? What would you think if I said that in order for you to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus and in order for you to have a place in the kingdom of heaven, it would be necessary for you to properly convert to Judaism first. Or if you are already a Jew, then you would need to recommit your life to the Jewish faith, to Judaism. You would, of course, need to be circumcised if you were not already circumcised, and you would need to commit yourself to living a life in complete and full obedience to the law of Moses. What would you think of me if I was to say that? And then, if you were to do that, then through believing in Jesus as the Messiah, then you would also have a place in the kingdom of heaven when you physically died and passed from this life into the next. I would hope that if you heard me say something like that, that your response would sound something to the effect of, now Aaron, that does sound a little interesting, but I personally believe that you need to mature a little bit in your faith that that would be the statement from someone who was relatively immature in their faith, that you may believe in the Lord Jesus as being the Messiah, and you may be able to prove it quite well through looking at all of the prophecies that are in the Scriptures and seeing how the Lord Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. But even if that was the case, your understanding of how we grow in our relationship with Christ Jesus, I certainly believe, is very immature, especially when you consider that it has to do with you living a life in obedience to the law of Moses. Now, if I was to say that, then your response should naturally be that my faith is relatively immature and I probably need to grow a little bit more in Christ Jesus. However, that's precisely what the apostles believed as they were beginning to grow in their faith. In fact, it wasn't until Acts chapter 10 that the apostles discovered and acknowledged in Acts chapter 11 that a Gentile could actually be saved without first becoming a Jew. But even then, there was an expectation that the Gentile would still have to be properly converted to Judaism, live a life in obedience to the Mosaic law, and therefore live a life of repentance and obedience. It wasn't until Acts chapter 15 that the apostles considered the question of whether or not a Gentile would have to be circumcised. Now, it's important to see that this question had to do with a Gentile, not a Jew. But for a Gentile to be saved, would they have to be circumcised? In addition to that, they also asked the question of does a Gentile have to live a life in obedience to the law of Moses? This is Acts chapter 15 when they finally ask these questions. These are very important questions and they do reveal a significant amount of immaturity in the early church. And this is very important to understand. However, even though the apostles struggled with these kinds of questions, and it appears in Acts chapter 15 that they never really did come to an absolute resolution to this question, especially when it came to the debate with the Apostle Paul. However, even though there were many apostles who struggled with these issues, not all of them struggled with these issues, not all of the disciples struggled with these issues. And I sincerely believe that the earliest example of a person, of an individual, who got in touch with the reality that we do not live a life of trying to live in obedience to the law of Moses, 
I personally believe that the earliest evidence in the scriptures of a person who I believe got in touch with this reality, that that's not how we live our daily lives, I believe this person is described in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, we have the description of Stephen having a conflict with one of the synagogues in Jerusalem. This is a very important conflict, especially considering who he has a conflict with, and also understanding what the conflict was over. This is a very pivotal moment in the church, a wonderful opportunity for the church to develop and mature, but it did not happen as the result of a revelation through one of the apostles. Instead, this happened through another fellow by the name of Stephen. Now, Stephen was recognized as an elder in the church. This was described in the first part of Acts chapter 6. But beginning in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, we have a further description of Stephen. In Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now the first thing I would like to draw your attention to is Acts chapter 6 verse 8, where it says that Stephen was full of grace and power, and he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now this is unique that he was full of grace He apparently had a very good understanding of the grace of God and how that would have an impact on an individual's life if they were to truly trust and rely on the grace of God. But I will come back to that in just a moment. It says also that he was full of power. He was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Well, this in and of itself does not necessarily demonstrate that Stephen was mature, that he was a mature believer, or even that he had a very profound relationship with the living God through the Lord Jesus. It doesn't necessarily mean that, because the Lord Jesus was performing many powerful works, many great signs and wonders through the apostles and through others for the purpose of validating what he had to say and what he did when he was conducting his ministry through the apostles as they would continue to perpetuate and propagate the messages that he conveyed with the intent of encouraging people to trust and believe on what the Lord Jesus had accomplished for them by dying on the cross and raising from the dead through his resurrection. These signs and wonders were given in order to validate the Lord Jesus. They were not given for the purpose, necessarily, of validating the apostles or disciples. These signs and wonders were given to validate the truth that was communicated through the disciples and the apostles, not to validate the people themselves, but to validate the Lord Jesus and to validate the message that the Lord Jesus was wanting to see propagated. That's really important to understand. But then in verse 9, it says, But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen. The synagogue of the freedmen was a synagogue of Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. Now, this is also very important to pay attention to, because this is a reference to a synagogue that was specifically for Gentile believers, Gentile believers in Judaism, that is, not Gentile believers in the Lord Jesus. This is a specific synagogue for those people who converted to Judaism. Now, when seeing this, it would be important to consider, why would there be a unique synagogue for these people? Why would there be a specific unique synagogue where these people would congregate, why would they not be assimilated within the other synagogues? Why would they want to have their own synagogue, their own unique synagogue? 
Well, now there are several possibilities that could be true with regards to why there would be such a distinct synagogue. The first most convenient possibility would be to say that they wanted to have a synagogue of their own because many of the Jews, many of the religious Jews in the surrounding region were not very religious. It could be that they wanted to have their own synagogue because they did not feel that the synagogues were orthodox enough. It is possible that that would be a motivator with regards to why they would want to set up their own synagogue. For example, today, most of the synagogues in the United States are Reformed synagogues. They're not Orthodox synagogues. They are synagogues that are considered to be very liberal synagogues. They are synagogues of people who do not really take the law very seriously, but are very liberal with their ideas, very liberal with their theologies, in the sense that they are interested in liberating theologies, or they are interested in various philosophies in order to try to supplement their lives, because they don't really believe that the law of Moses is complete for them. And so we shouldn't be very surprised if we discover that there were synagogues back then, and there were, there were synagogues back then, filled with people who did not really take the law of Moses as seriously as a convert would quite likely take the law of Moses very seriously. A convert will generally take the law of Moses much more seriously than a natural-born Jew, mainly because this is a choice that is made by an individual to live a life of devotion to holiness, to repentance and obedience. And so that is one possibility that I think is worth expressing, that it could be that they established a unique synagogue for themselves where they would really take the law of Moses very seriously. Now, there were certainly other synagogues that did take the law of Moses very seriously, very orthodox synagogues. However, there are a couple of things that you need to keep in mind with regards to these types of synagogues. The first thing that you would want to keep in mind is the fact that they would probably be full. In other words, there would only be so many people who could attend those individual synagogues just because of the sizes of the buildings and because of the number of people that would be able to participate in them. Because of those kinds of restrictions, it could quite likely be that there was not enough space, and so the Gentiles decided to set up their own synagogue. But the other thing that is probably more likely, not the space factor, but another factor, and that is the cultural factor. The cultural factor has a very strong bias. The people, the Orthodox people, would have a very strong bias against Gentiles. And this is just part of the culture, that if a person is not really born Jewish, even though they may be converted to Judaism, they may have converted to Judaism, they still would always be recognized as somewhat of a second-class Jew, not a real, complete, full Jew, not one who was actually born of the tribe of Judah or born as a child of Abraham. They would not necessarily be accepted as a real Jew, even though they may be much more committed to the belief, to the philosophy of Judaism, or to the religion of Judaism, they may be more committed than a regular Jew is, but please understand that being a Jew is not just about having a religion. It is about a nationality. It is about a people group, a people who are specific descendants of others. And so this cultural bias would prevent a Gentile convert from being fully accepted within a synagogue. 
he would not be fully accepted in general as a natural-born Jew would be accepted within a synagogue. This is an important distinction to see, and this is a real problem that we deal with even to this day. In many of the synagogues today, there are many people who do convert to Judaism and yet are still not really recognized as being official Jews. It's normally several generations before the children even will be considered to be real Jews. There is this subtle bias, this subtle attitude that I have found in many of the synagogues, not all of the synagogues, of course, but in many of the synagogues that I personally have participated in throughout my life, I have found this to be a serious problem, this to be a very real problem. And I could easily see that those who really wanted to follow the Jewish faith who were converts to Judaism, would easily set up their own synagogue because of the acceptance factor, because of the issue that concerns relative to acceptance. We as individuals have a deep need to be accepted. It's something that we will never be able to escape. It's part of who we are, that we have been made in this specific way, just like we need food and water and we need shelter in order to get out of the elements. We can only handle certain varying degrees of temperature. We have a need for acceptance as well. And this need is a very powerful motivator. It is a very powerful motivator that people can use or abuse one way or the other. And given this, I can certainly see how a separate synagogue would be set up in Jerusalem for those Gentiles who converted to Judaism. I sincerely believe that this is probably the most likely reason why the synagogue of the freedmen was established. I don't have enough evidence to give 100% conviction with regards to this belief. However, I do feel very strongly that this is why there would be a unique synagogue, especially one of the freedmen, a synagogue specifically for Gentiles who wanted to be Jewish. And so considering that, continue in verse 9. This is Acts chapter 6, verse 9, where it says, But some of the men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, something else that is important to note here at this time is that they argue with Stephen. At no time prior to this do we have any evidence or any record that the freedmen ever argued with any of the other apostles or any of the other disciples. As far as we know, this is the first time that there has been a conflict with this specific synagogue. Why would that be the case? Why would they have a conflict with Stephen? I personally believe that it has to do with verse 8. In verse 8, Stephen was recognized as someone who was full of grace. He was not full of law, he was full of grace. Which tells me that Stephen was probably believing something that was different, somewhat different, from what the apostles were believing. This would be a reason as to why the freedmen never argued with the apostles previously, and as far as we have any record, we have no record of them ever arguing with anybody else for that matter in Jerusalem. We don't have any record of them doing that or stirring up the crowd in order to throw rocks at them until they are dead. And this is very important to consider because they apparently got away with murdering Stephen. And so if they were successful with that, then why would they not continue to do so with others? I believe that the answer to this issue is that Stephen was believing something and he was teaching something that was slightly different than what the apostles were teaching. Consider it from this perspective. As I described earlier in this broadcast, the apostles did not quite have it all together right away. 
It wasn't until Acts chapter 10 and 11 that the apostles acknowledged that a Gentile could be saved. It wasn't until Acts chapter 15 that they asked the question as to whether or not a Gentile should live in obedience to the law of Moses and be circumcised. It wasn't until then that they actually had the discussion, as far as we can tell. And so if that's the case, then I sincerely believe that the evidence shows very strongly that the apostles would be teaching people to be properly converted to Judaism and to live in obedience to the law of Moses. In addition to that, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and to believe that Jesus will return soon and he will set up his messianic kingdom and those who believe in the Lord Jesus would have eternal life with him in the kingdom and perhaps in heaven when they would physically die. This is a reasonable description of what the apostles would have believed given the evidence that we have at our disposal. Now, considering this, if this is the case, then what conflict would they have with the freedmen? What conflict would they really have? The only conflict that they would have would be that Jesus is the Messiah, or he is not the Messiah. That's the only conflict that they would have. There would be no conflict with regards to daily living, with regards to should we be living in obedience to the law of Moses, with regards to should we be following the customs of the elders and of the Pharisees. There would be no real conflict because the apostles were believing the very things that the freedmen were teaching, with the exception, of course, that Jesus was the Messiah. But believing that Jesus is the Messiah would not be cause enough for the synagogue of the freedmen to raise up against them because there were many beliefs about who the Messiah would be. And if Jesus was the Messiah, then he could certainly come back and establish his kingdom. And if he's not the Messiah, then I guess he won't come back because he's dead anyway. These are the kinds of attitudes that could very well be expressed by the people who were part of the synagogue of the freedmen. And so why would they have any conflict with the apostles? But with Stephen, they do have a conflict. They have a very serious conflict, and so I believe that Stephen was probably believing something that was slightly different from the apostles. Consider, for example, verse 11. This is Acts chapter 6, verse 11. It says, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. Now, please understand something here. No one else, as far as we could tell, was speaking against the holy place or against the law or against Moses or against the customs. No one else was doing this. For them to bring Stephen before the council would mean that there were things that he was saying that would lead them to believe that this was a unique message that was coming from him, not from the other apostles, but from him. Otherwise, they would drag them all over to the council. But in this case, they only brought Stephen, which tells me, again, that there is a discrimination, there is a distinction to be made between what Stephen was teaching and what the apostles were teaching. Now, for Luke to record that they put forward false witnesses and secretly induced men to say that we have heard him speak blasphemous words, in order for them to accomplish this, there had to be some things that he was saying that would lead them to believe that this was the case. It does not necessarily mean that he was speaking these words against Moses or against the law or against the customs, anything like this. It just means that there would probably be a concern with regards to how he was saying certain things. 
or it was very clear what Stephen was telling them, that he was telling them that the law was to be done away with, that the temple was to be done away with. That could be true. It would depend on the perspective of the hearer more than it would depend on the perspective of the speaker in order to understand this. Because from different perspectives, this could certainly be true, depending on how Stephen was communicating these things or how the people were receiving these things. These are difficult things to consider because we don't have enough evidence. However, I can give you some specific insights that can give you a better understanding with regards to why there could be some confusion if Stephen really did have a full understanding of the grace of God, as it says in verse 8, that he was full of grace. If that's the case, then certainly these could be some results. But even if they brought him before the council, if they brought him before the council, his defense could be very simple. And that could be a defense of, I don't know what these people are talking about. They're not telling the truth. I certainly do believe in the law of Moses. And I sincerely believe that he did, at least for what it was to be used for. But I also believe that he was full of grace, that he had a good understanding of the grace of God. And so, in addition to that belief, he also believed that we were to live in accordance with the grace of God, not in accordance with the law. And the reason why I say this is because if I was in his position, I certainly would emphasize the law, not the issue of grace, even though I do have a clear understanding of the grace of God, and I do make a very strong distinction between law and grace. If you were to skip ahead in Acts chapter 7, skip ahead into Acts chapter 7 just for a moment, if you were to look forward into Acts chapter 7 verse 51, Stephen said in his defense, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. In other words, he emphasizes the importance of their understanding that they do not keep the law, which means that to them he would be communicating the message of, you need to keep the law. Just because you think you're keeping the law does not mean you're keeping the law. You need to truly obey the law. If you want to be right with your God according to your belief, then that is what you are to do. And I could see him saying that with the hope and with the expectation that at a certain point they would come to the end of themselves and recognize that they cannot keep the law. And all they can do is then rely on and trust in the grace and mercy of God which would explain why it was written in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, that Stephen was full of grace. And also in verse 10, when it says that they were not able to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Folks, I'm saying this because this is what I do. This is how I communicate with people like this. If I was talking with a handful of Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, I certainly would not feel very shy about telling them about the grace of God. But at the same time, I also would be very forthright about the law of Moses, and I would encourage them to try and live in obedience to the law of Moses if they were not willing to accept the grace and mercy of God, to hopefully get them to the point of recognizing the grace and mercy of God. However, what I have found when I have talked with people like this in the past is that they have become very angry with me, just like they became very angry with Stephen, because of the conviction of the truth that they are not really being obedient to God. 
and their accusation towards me of not being obedient to God is just as invalid as their own life and their own standard for living in which they're not being obedient to God either. And so with that, people generally get very angry, very frustrated, and it would be very easy that they could be so angry that they would be willing to murder someone to get them out of their side and out of their way and so that they could continue to live a life of being deceived. Now, if a person does receive the grace of God in light of the law of God, and what I mean by that is that if they will believe the law to the extent where it leads them to the point of realizing just how empty and hopeless they really are, then they are prepared to receive the mercy of God. If that's the case, then we are to continue to now live our daily lives in light of the grace and mercy of God. And if we do that, then there is no reason for us to return back to the law of trying to live a life that we most certainly could not live before, why do we think that we can live it now? There is no way that we can because we were not created to function in that way. We were created to function by living our daily life in dependency on the love and the acceptance and on the grace of God. This is how our God made us, and so we are to walk in our daily life in this way. It's not to say that there's anything wrong with the law. What I am saying is that there is something wrong with us, that we were not created for the purpose of living in obedience to the law. We were created for the purpose of resting and trusting and relying on the grace of God. And so if you were to follow through with that truth and realize that that is how we walk in our daily lives, then there is no reason for us to continue to pursue obedience to the law, which is why I believe the freedmen said what they said in verse 13. This is Acts chapter 6, verse 13, when they said that this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. Well, this is a false testimony. He certainly would not be speaking against the holy place or the law. If I was there, I would certainly be speaking in favor of the holy place in the law to the extent where I would want somebody to eventually come to the end of themselves so that they would be willing to receive the grace and mercy of God. But once they have received the grace and mercy of God, I would unceasingly speak about the reality that we do not return back to the holy place or return back to the law, but we can now live in a completely new way of life according to a new covenant that has now gone into effect because of what the Lord Jesus did for us on the cross. By dying for our sins, he now no longer holds any of our sins against us, and so we are no longer going to govern or live our lives on the basis of law, but now on the basis of grace, which is a completely new way of life. But I am out of time for this broadcast, and so I will have to explain this in the next broadcast. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Thank you,